two big questions that come up so often in our world. They have for, for years. First one is, where do you come from? There's another one we wonder about too. It's, well, who do you come from? From whom do you come? Not just from where do you come? So when we got Jesus, we know well, he was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. We just watched a seven-minute roller coaster ride where the pastor unpacked Jesus' ancestry from his dad's side, as told in the Gospel of Matthew, and his mom's genealogy is unpacked in the Gospel of Luke to see where he came from and whom he came from. We desire to know both those things, the where and the who. I had a friend in seminary, she was a classmate of mine, sweet lady named Pat. I'd imagine she was probably in her 50s. I know she had adult kiddos. And uh, she lived in Charleston, South Carolina, very proud of her African-American heritage there. And one time, some of my classmates got to talking about the 23andMe test that you can take, where you um, take it, you send it off, and they, they trace your DNA. I'm not a scientist, but they basically can figure out where in the world you originated from. What are the pieces of ethnicity that are woven into you? And somehow the discussion came up and said, well, are you going to do this? Are you not? I don't know how I feel about it. And Pat speaks up. She said, well, you know, when I try to trace where I'm from, I try to trace my genealogy, uh, it ends at a plantation in the South. That's as far as I can go. Before that, I don't know how my ancestors who were enslaved, I don't know exactly where they came from. It, it wasn't written down. She said, so I do plan to take that 23andMe test because it can at least give me a general idea of what region of the world I originated from. I want to be able to go a little bit further. You know, and I guess that speaks to the fact that it's great to know both these things, but sometimes it's not a pretty picture. Sometimes there's just pain there's misfortune along the way when we look back. And, and even in Jesus' family tree, we, we saw a lot of those folks. If you look at the stories of their lives, they fell way short of their names. Or some of them, they were very true to their names. Names had a way of shaping people and who they were then and now. But when we start looking at our ancestors, it, it, and we kind of bring it present day, we have to look at our own culture. And when you look at our culture... We have a crisis that's going on. It's a father absence crisis. And when you start looking at stats that the U.S. Census Bureau pulled out just this year, it's staggering because there are over 18 million kids, almost one in four kids, who in their home, they don't have a biological dad, a stepdad, or an adoptive dad who is influencing their lives for good. And so they have what they call a father factor that is playing into almost every social ill in society. And when I looked at these stats, I mean, it just smacked me upside the head as a dad because when a kid grows up in a father-absent home, like you're talking about the kid being more likely to have behavioral problems, commit crime, go to prison, more likely to face abuse and neglect and to abuse drugs and alcohol, four times more likely that they'll live in poverty, uh, twice the risk that um, they'll experience infant mortality, seven times more likely they'll get pregnant as a teenager, twice as likely to struggle with obesity and twice as likely to drop out of school, out of high school once they get to that level. We, we've got this, this crisis where there's this, this break, this influence that should be there and be so formative and pass on this legacy. It's just not there for over 18 million kids right now in 2020 in the United States. So how powerful is it? We're walking through this Christmas series 
We're digging into this verse, this couple of verses, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And we're looking at the fact Isaiah was speaking 700 years before Jesus was born. But he was talking about this king that was going to be born and this kingdom that was going to come and what that king was going to be like and how it was going to be greater than any king that God's people had ever seen. In, in a verse that said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called, here it comes, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. The last couple of weeks, we, we just really dove in and Brad unpacked for us, what does it mean that Jesus is our wonderful counselor who, who guides us? And what does it mean that he is our mighty God who has more power than, than we can imagine? Now we, now we get to everlasting Father. There's a big gap so many people have. They, they, they desperately need a father figure. And Jesus meets us in that place. And that's what we're going to unpack today. And I think there's a truth we're going to see that I hope confronts you like it has me. And that is this. Most of us live life and we define God and we think, well, God is basically just the heavenly version of my earthly dad, my insufficient, screwed up dad. But it's actually the exact opposite. We need to flip that around. Because when we think about it, our earthly fathers are actually just flawed representatives of our everlasting father. Our earthly fathers are just flawed representatives of our earthly father. They represent God. They do not define God. And so we're going to spend some time in God's Word and talk about, all right, if Jesus is everlasting father, what does that mean? What does that mean for me and for you? So Jesus, we're going to go, we're going to do this. We're going to dive into your Word. Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask that you just fall upon us in a huge, huge way. I pray that you will inspire us and encourage us, that you will challenge us, that we will walk out of this place just so taken by the fact that you've had this plan going for thousands of years. You're rescuing us. And no matter what type of earthly father we've had, you are our everlasting heavenly father who doesn't give up on us. I pray you will just impress that on us. Father, open our eyes, soften our hearts, thicken our skin. You know what needs to be done better than we do ourselves. We ask you to do that. In your name, amen. So we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Hard copy Bible's awesome. Uh, you can also, if you're online, we're going to have stuff, we're going to have the verses on the screen. You can jump on insidescc.org and pull it up and click sermon notes. The verses all pop up. It's all dandy and great. And we're going to start off today by taking a look at Joseph, who happened to be Jesus' earthly father. And just like all of us had an earthly father, biological father. Now, Joseph wasn't the biological father, but he did raise Jesus that was entrusted to him, and he embraced that. So we're going to look. He gets a lot of shout-outs in the New Testament. So this is going to be just kind of like a flyover. Okay, well, what did Jesus' earthly dad look like? So let's check it out. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. It says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So... Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he'd considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, 
Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what's been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Jump to verse 24. It says, Then when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So here's Joseph. He gets this news that just blows his mind. And what floors us about this is the fact Mary would have been viewed very disgracefully, even if she offered this explanation. People probably aren't going to buy it. And so when Joseph says, I'll still marry her, and on top of that, I'm not going to, even after I marry her, I'm not going to sleep with her until after the kid's born, pretty much Joseph signed himself and his whole family up to participate in that shame and that disgrace. Joseph doesn't focus on how other people, other human beings are going to view him. He's thinking, what's my dad upstairs? What's my heavenly father, my everlasting father think about this? So he honors his word. He honors his wife. He honors God and this little baby that's going to be born. He's an honorable man. He trusts that if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I will be obedient. So is it super surprising that this is the type of guy that God chooses to have Jesus be raised by? I don't think so. So then we get to the kind of the where part. So where'd they raise him in those early years? Well, we got to jump to Matthew chapter 2 for this, verse 13, where it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. These dreams just keep popping up, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. Verse 19 says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard the Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went, he settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken to the prophets, that he'd be called a Nazarene. I kind of feel for Joseph because these angels just keep waking him up. I'm like, did this guy get a good night's sleep ever in his life? And we, for those of you who are just visual and it helps lock you in, I want to put on the screen this map that shows how Mary and Joseph traveled this long journey when she was in the third trimester, no less, originally from Nazareth to Bethlehem for him to be born. And then, after being in Bethlehem, living there, Jesus gets to be probably a toddler. And they get this message, hey, this homicidal, paranoid Roman ruler is going to kill all the babies in town. You've got you to skip town. You've got to go to Egypt. So they go, and you see how far that was that they traveled. They live in a foreign land, knowing it's not safe. And then when the coast is clear, they settle back in Nazareth because that's going to be the safest place to raise this boy. So these angels, they keep appearing with messages, and Joseph just keeps listening, and he just keeps obeying. He remains faithful. He protects his family. He's not afraid to do the hard things, not afraid to make the hard choices, not afraid to get up in the middle of the night and make a decision when the time comes. This is the man that Jesus had as his earthly dad. But then you bring the question, okay, so I see Joseph, I see Joe, but what did he do for a living? That's the question that comes up a lot, right? Well, we got to jump quite a few chapters down, Matthew 13, and it speaks to that. What did he do for a living? This is verse 54, Matthew 13, 54. It says, Jesus went to his hometown, and he began to teach them in their synagogue. 
so that they were astonished and said, where'd this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? Where does he get all these things? So when we look there, in English, we would usually say, well, Joseph was a carpenter, right? But in Greek, there was a different word. It says he was a tecton. And a tecton was someone, yeah, he probably worked with stone or with wood, but he didn't just work with wood. He probably worked with stone. And the kind of projects he did were what you're about to see on the screen. This is a picture of the amphitheater in Sepphoris, which was a town just a few miles north of where Jesus grew up. And when the Romans were constructing all of these uh, different buildings and, and all these projects, they would often hire Jewish tectons to build these. Now, we don't know for sure. We know this was built around the time Jesus was growing up, when Joseph would have been working. We don't have conclusive evidence that they worked on this precise amphitheater. But we do know this is the kind of stuff that tectons did. Who knows? Maybe Jesus and Joseph went and did stonework on this thing that's still standing. Uh, my wife and I got to stand in this thing and sing a song a few years ago when we went to Israel, and it was just, it was just amazing to think, wow, Jesus could have stood right here in this thing. So Jesus, he would have worked as a tecton. He would have been apprenticed by his dad until he was about 30 years old. And Joseph, it seems like, based on people's responses, when he goes into the synagogue and he starts teaching and unpacking all this wisdom, it sounds like Joseph probably raised Jesus as a pretty down-to-earth, hard-working local kid who probably loved his neighbors. And folks just don't know what to think. Isn't this the guy who works with wood and stone? How in the world is he making all these connections from the Old Testament scriptures. How is this happening? Joseph raised Jesus to have competence and character. But was Joseph perfect? No, he wasn't. And I think this next story shows one of his more significant shortcomings. It's kind of our last one in glancing at Jesus' earthly dad. This is in Luke chapter 2, verse 41. It says, every year Jesus' parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when he was 12 years old, They went up according to the custom of the festival, and after those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents didn't know it. Oops. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went on a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. And after three days, they lost their kid for three days. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard Jesus were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus looks back at him and says, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? but they didn't understand what he said to them. Now, I want to give the benefit of the doubt to Mary and Joseph. I really do. Uh, You know, I I hope you give me the benefit of the doubt that I forgot to feed my children breakfast yesterday. Around noon, Miles is like, Dad, all we had was a bowl of cocoa rice. Bunch of sugar. Yeah. So I want to give them a little benefit of the doubt. And when they would have traveled to this festival in Jerusalem, It would have been a little bit haywire because it wasn't just one family that went. The whole village packed up and they went together. We're talking about the friends, the family, the neighbors, the extended family. So if you had a large nuclear family 
And you heard it mentioned, Jesus had multiple brothers. I think there were four of them mentioned. He also had sisters. They have a huge family, and he's the oldest. So you think about it. When you go anywhere with your kids, grocery store, amusement park, whatever, funeral home, are you as worried about your older kid usually? No, you're really distracted by the little kids, the ones that are underfoot. They're the ones who are more needy. So there's a good chance they're traveling in this big old caravan, and Jesus, as a 12-year-old who's almost a man, he's the equivalent of a family gathering where there's the adult's table, there's the little kid's table, and then what was the third table? The big kid's table, right? He's at the big kid's table. You don't have to worry about him. He's hanging out with the cousins and the aunts and uncles. But they lose him. And Jerusalem was a pretty big city, 70, 80,000 people. But when you had a festival, you're talking about maybe up to half a million people in this city. So when you're like, why is it taking them days to find him? Because it's chaos. There's people everywhere. And three days later, they find him. The rest of their family's probably home. And there sits Jesus, proving himself as this little prodigy to all these religious experts. And moms, they were the ones, when they were little, they nurtured them, cared for them, taught them stuff. When they got older, it was the dad. The dads were responsible for the education. So it seems like Joseph must have done something right, educating Jesus on the human level. And when they asked Jesus, though, when the mom and dad are like, Jesus, how could you do this? They don't understand his answer. He says, I got to be about my father's business. I need to be here in the temple. They, They don't get it. And I wonder why. Why don't they get it? Is that they're just exhausted and they're worried? Had the younger kids been pooping themselves and they just had no more mental bandwidth? What's going on? But they they don't get it. It goes over their head. Joseph was a great earthly dad, but he wasn't a perfect earthly dad, not by any stretch of the imagination. So we've seen that snapshot of Jesus' earthly dad. Good dude. I think I'd like to hang out with Joe, go cut some stone, you know, maybe build something. But what about our earthly dads? we got to reflect a little bit. As we get ready to do this, we're going to look at four types of dads that J.D. Greer, who's a really amazing pastor in North Carolina, that he talks about. And I, I want to make something clear. As we zoom in on these dads, I want to point out nearly every dad has some positive good attribute. And I think the same thing for every mom. If every human being is made in the image of God, no amount of evil and Satan trying to twist us and mess up our lives can take away every little glimpse of the light of Jesus, right? But in our brokenness, most of us dads tend to stumble into certain patterns and ways of acting, behaving, thinking. And so I'm going to list four of these common ways. You might hear, you might say, well, no, I have a great dad, but okay, that little piece fit, or no, my dad was good, but my mom, yeah, that resonated with my mom, okay? So you can expand this to parenthood in general, but we're talking about fatherhood today. So we're going to look at these four types of dads, and I encourage you, go into reflection mode. Think of how your dad was. If you are a dad like me, think about, is any of this brokenness showing up in my life, in my raising my family, or partnering with my adult kids, okay? So the first type of dad is the never satisfied dad. This is the dad who maybe was the taskmaster, and you just could never meet their expectations. You wondered where you stood with them. Seemed like no matter what you did, oh, it could have been better. You felt inadequate all the time, and the four words that you wanted to hear more than anything are the words you probably never got. I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of you. 
I talked to a pastor who got a chance to go and be kind of a mentor in a support group uh, at the local high school here in Shelbyville. And it was with this group of high school kids and just helping them try to walk through processing their family lives and the struggles they had. And one day, one of the guys in the group, one of these high school guys, shared a story about a difficult decision he had to make and a boundary he had to set or something. And this pastor looked at him and said, I am so proud of you. That was awesome. You did a good job there. And tears start coming down this student's face. He hadn't seen this kid cry ever. And the kid finally got himself dried off a little bit. And he looked at the pastor. He said, you know, I've, I've never ever been told that a single time in my whole life. That's the first time. And if that's you, your dad's brokenness, a lot of times will frame out your relationship with God you'll start worrying, can I really do enough to please my heavenly father? Where do I stand with him? Guilt just kind of runs you ragged, but the truth is, no. Our everlasting father's not standing there holding up this list of every failure, every shortcoming, and every unmet to do that you had in your life. That's, that's not how he works. Uh, quite the contrary. In Zephaniah 3.17, it paints this picture of God as our everlasting Father, and it says God rejoices over us with gladness. He quiets us with His love. It says He exults over us with loud singing. Instead of piling a bunch of work and a bunch of expectations on you that are unreasonable and that you could never meet, it says, no, God quiets you with His love. He wants you to be able to rest in that, have a little peace in His love. So if that's you, and you grew up with a never-satisfied dad, if your dad exhibited any of that stuff, how does the love of an everlasting father sound? How's it sound? Maybe you had dad number two, the time bomb dad. Time bomb dad is the dad who is pretty slow to show affection, pretty quick to get angry, might have provided well for your family financially, but it kind of stopped after that. Hugs were rare, words of affirmation didn't come often. Seems like this, was, this is huge. The smallest mistake would just trigger them to explode and blow up. Your childhood was just one big exercise and walking on eggshells, hoping that you're not going to make dad just blow sky high like a volcano. One of the pictures I read about with this, it, it said if dad was the T-Rex and your home was the ancient world where the dinosaurs roamed, he was looking for someone to devour maybe and your mom was like the stegosaurus with the big fins on her back and the spikes on her tail like nope 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 you're not going to nope you calm down go go eat something else that's the picture and if you grew up with a time bomb dad well then maybe you you worry god doesn't like you that he's always angry at you you assume that judgment's all you're ever going to get you spend time praying but maybe you think i'm never going to actually be heard or get an answer here you brace yourself for punishment, even with the slightest slip-up and mistake, the littlest misstep. But I, I can tell you, when you look at history and you look at God's Word, God's not a time-bomb dad any more than He's a never-satisfied dad. He looks for ways to love you. He doesn't want to blow you up when you don't meet His expectations. We don't have to fearfully avoid God he doesn't follow you with judgment and anger. No, he actually, his love in the Bible is described as eager, as seeking us out, going after us. So if you grew up with a time bomb dad, how does the love of an everlasting father sound to you today? Here's type three, emotionally distant dad. This is a dad 
maybe he was around your whole life, but he was never really close to you. You know, it made you feel like he was just a little too busy for you, came to your volleyball games, but the car ride home was just really awkward and really silent. You didn't know what to do with it. The dinner table hardly said a word, and thus your mom talked to him, and it was one-word answers. Changed your oil in your car faithfully every 3,000 miles, maybe every 2,900 because you can't be too safe, right? And he used that high mileage oil because you knew the car you were driving was not the new car in the family. But, you know, he pretty much never said, I love you. He survived his childhood by staying arm's length. And unfortunately, he didn't realize when he got his own kids, oh, I, I, need, to, I need to pull him in close. There's an author named Stephen Poulter, and he wrote a book called The Father Factor. And they looked at a bunch of data about this fathering style, the emotionally distant dad, and they found out that between the years of 1945 and 1980, about 50% of nuclear families in the United States had an emotionally distant dad. There's a lot of reasons given for that. Uh, Part of it was a lot of the dads of boomers, they had PTSD from World War II, they didn't know it. They couldn't process their own emotions, let alone other people's. But pretty much every single baby boomer and every single Gen Xer, if you took all of them from all those years, about half of them had an emotionally distant dad. And, and those, those consequences start to show up. You know, it's kind of the leave it to beaver dad, the Ward Cleaver type. Good guy, you know, by culture standards, he's a good dad, but he's just not emotionally there when he's there. Some of y'all remember Bo Jackson, those famous commercials back in the day where it said, Bo knows. He was a multi-sport star, still hailed as possibly the greatest athlete of our time. And he was a star for the Los Angeles Raiders, for the National Football League. He was a star outfielder for the Kansas City Royals. He could hit, he could run, he could do it all. And he confessed one time. He said, in all my growing up years, all the way through my pro career in both leagues, my dad never, ever came to a game. He had all these accomplishments, all this ability, all these commercials, all this money. But what he wanted more than anything was for his dad to show up at just one game. And he never did. When that's your relationship with your dad, that that can eat at you. You know, you start to think God's just distant. You don't see yourself as a priority. You think all the responsibility's on you. And you struggle to love other people because... You can't really give other people what you never got, right? But then we look at God's Word and we see God loves us so much. Even when sin got in the way, He wasn't willing to let it stay in the way. He wouldn't let us stay separated. When John 3.16 said, this is how God loved the world, Jesus said, no, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to make it possible for you to know a Father, an everlasting Father. I'm going to work to be near you and I'm going to work to be known by you. So if that's you, and anything in that pinged, and how you saw your earthly dad, or your heavenly dad, if you had an emotionally distant dad, how does the love of an everlasting father sound to you? Last one is this, an absent dad. An absent dad is where he pretty much leaves you with a life soundtrack of rejection and unimportance, Never showed up to your birthday parties or school plays, spent his time doing what he wanted to do. Maybe if your folks split up when you were a kid, he he never really bothered to come around. He let your grandpa or your stepdad or your uncle kind of fill in the gaps as best as he could. 
got so caught up in chasing his career, he was never home. I think the, the poster song for this is that old song from years ago, The Cat's in the Cradle by Harry Chapman. You remember that? Cat's in the cradle at the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll get together then. That's the reality of an absent dad. And so you start thinking, well, if my earthly dad rejected me, well, God rejects me. I don't deserve love. I could never be included. I'm not important. My heart's just broken. And then Jesus enters saying, no, I, I, I want to be your everlasting father. I don't abandon you. Didn't abandon you when it meant hanging on a cross. I'm not absent. I'm present with you every time you suffer. I accept you even when you can't accept yourself. You are way more important. I'm way more important than I can imagine. So if you grew up with that kind of dad, an absent dad, if any piece of that rang true, how does the love of an everlasting father sound to you this Christmas? I encourage you to think about that. Was there a piece of my dad growing up that was never satisfied, was a ticking time bomb, was emotionally distant, maybe absent? That's, that's rough. That's heavy. Before you move ahead, moving towards an everlasting father, you've got to say, how did I get to where I am and what brought me here? Acknowledging that's a piece of the healing. What's curious is this. As I went digging in and looking at Jesus' earthly dad, You've got that story where Joseph and Mary accidentally lose him for three days. Just, just flat out lose him, and they find him. But after that, if you go through all four of the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Joseph doesn't appear as a character ever again. He's referenced in passing, like as a past tense thing, but he's not referenced. And yet you see Jesus' mom, you see his brothers and sisters mentioned. Why? Well, we think it's probably because Joseph died at some point. Wouldn't be surprising. A lot of times men were much older than the women. Mary was a teenager. He's probably an older guy. So as Jesus went through adulthood, at some point he lost his dad who had apprenticed him, who raised him. So when Jesus gets to age 30 and he goes out to do this three-year earthly ministry that just changes the world, he had to do it without his dad. Probably. Dad probably wasn't there to see any of that. And many of you are living right now and, and you're fatherless. Either you've, you've lost your dad or maybe you'd feel like you never had your dad in the first place. And the woundedness of that relationship or the lack thereof or the absence of your dad now, it, it's just left you feeling like, I got to go it alone. And it shaped your view of yourself and your world and your God and it, it, it's just it's run stuff amok. But I will tell you, you don't have to live that way. Not when there's an everlasting father who has a plan that's bigger and better. Not with an everlasting father who brings healing and brings empathy that no other human being could bring. You don't have to let your earthly father define your heavenly father anymore. Yeah, I'm sure he misrepresented God. I'm sure he fell short. But that doesn't have to be the end of that story. My question for you this Christmas as we celebrate the birth of this little baby that we now know is our Savior and our King and our Lord is will you look to that Savior and that King and that Lord and that manger and will you let Him heal you? Will you let Him start putting the pieces back together? Will you muster that courage 
to say, meet me where I am, as screwed up as I am, and be who you say you are. Will you be the everlasting father I never had, but I always wanted? That psalm that Brandon read at the beginning, Psalm 68, in verse 5, it says, God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless. That is who he is, that is what he does. So will you give him a chance to be that in your life this Christmas? Will you give him a chance? J.D. Greer summed it up this way, kind of tying the bow together. He said, you know, on their best day, Our fathers are hazy pictures of the majesty of our everlasting Father. God's not distant. He's not angry. He's not waiting for us to get our act together. God, your Father, loves you deeply. He wants to be with you. He sent Jesus so that you might call Him Father and be called His son, His daughter. He is your everlasting Father. You know, I grew up with an incredible earthly dad, earthly father. He's sitting right back here. You guys know Mark Farnsley. He's an incredible, godly man. He's faithful. I have a father-in-law, Bill Wilson, lives in North Carolina, and he's an amazing guy. I'm so glad my kids get to call Bill their pop. I'm so glad the kids get to call my dad Papa. I had two amazing grandfathers who were, they've gone on to be with Jesus. They've been with Jesus a long time. And, you know, there was lots of goodness to celebrate in those three men, lots of goodness, but there were lots of flaws too, and they'll admit that. They would all rattle them off to you. But they pointed me over and over to an everlasting father who could be everything to me that they could not. They set the best example they could but they made it clear, we, we can't even do this the way we're called to do it if it's not for the love that he gave us first. And so I ask you, as the worship team comes up and we get ready to sing this response song, will you flip that paradigm in your brain? Will you let this holiday season be the one where instead of looking at God and saying, oh, he's just the heavenly version of my insufficient earthly father, will you say, no, My earthly dad, he was a flawed representative of my everlasting father. And that everlasting father will meet me. He will heal me. He loves me. Let's ask him for his help. Jesus, um, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done. You say you're a father to the fatherless. And so for all of us here, who with either one of our parents, our mom or our dad, just, we feel that way. We feel fatherless. We feel parentless. I pray you will meet us where we are and show that's not the end of this story. You've worked miracles in the past. You've healed bodies and you've healed diseases. We ask you to heal our hearts, to rewire our brains. We ask that this Christmas we can look to you And we can, for the first time, really embrace you and see, wow, yeah, you're our wonderful counselor waiting to guide us. You're our mighty God who has overcome all the junk that weighs down on us. 
You are the everlasting Father who loves us far beyond anything we can comprehend. You're the Prince of Peace who will bring peace even where we feel like it's not possible. Would you let us know and experience that? Jesus, we love you. We reach out to you. We sing this song to you. We thank you for the goodness we saw in our earthly dads and pray it'll point us to your goodness this Christmas. In your name we pray boldly together. Amen. Amen.